Well, good morning. Thank you, Michael, for that uh, introduction. Um, what Michael didn't tell you, there's a lot of things Michael didn't tell you. One of them is that Michael called me Dr. Darrell. Um, nobody else really called me that. Uh, so Michael had his own expectations in that sense. And uh, uh, but um, that aside, Michael's a, a great friend, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed the time we had together uh, at seminary. There is a great need in New Zealand. Um, I spent four years here in the United States. Uh, this is actually a first for me several, in several ways, uh, one of which is that uh, this is my first time in Texas, so uh, the great state of Texas. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I've lived in California for four years and never managed to get here. My wife traveled all the way in a car from California to El Paso, but she never got any further than that. And then she got pulled over by Border Patrol in New Mexico and had a nightmare of episode. But anyway, these are the joys of students traveling without their visas and documentation, that sort of thing. But anyway, all that aside, there's a great need in New Zealand, particularly for biblical counseling. So here in America, uh, you're used to hearing about ACBC, perhaps. Some of you, I think, have got your working toward or have got ACBC certification. In New Zealand, we have one person who is ACBC certified, um, and most people in the country have never even heard that there is such a thing as biblical counseling, which is why I'm doing the doctorate in that area, so that I can bring the Word of God to bear with the, the suffering and the sin that people in the churches in New Zealand so badly suffer with, so that they can see the sufficiency of what God has given us in His Word. But I invite you this morning to uh, turn with me to His Word, because that's why we're here. It is through His Word that we are saved. We cannot be saved without a preacher, um, and it's his word that he uses in that preacher to bring us to Christ. And so I invite you this morning to open to the book of Colossians, the epistle, the epistle to the Colossians. We're going to be reading there from chapter 3. And while you're turning, I'd just like to ask for the Lord's help upon our time, if we may. Oh Lord, you know our hearts. You see into each one of us. You know the struggles, you know the sin, you know the suffering. You know it all, Lord. You know the needs of our hearts. And Lord, you have given to us your word to explain to us not only our need, but the solution to that need, which is Christ. So as we open your word this morning, we beg of you, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would Reveal to us the majesty of Christ, the incredible breadth and scope of what you have wrought for us in him and how our union with him informs not only our salvation, but every moment of our lives. We pray that through this time, you would help us to think carefully and to begin to live with the mind of hope that comes from our union with Christ. We ask for your blessing this morning in our Savior's name. So let me read, start by reading the text. We're going to read Colossians chapter 3, just the first, first four verses. And if my accent puts you off, I'm going too fast or I sound funny, um, just nod and pretend you understand. So Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... 
Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It's a great passage. A couple of years ago, a couple of sociologists, they published the findings of a study they'd been doing over a fairly long period of time on uh, Christians. And the question was, what was it that these Christians believed about God? And particularly, this was people who had grown up in a Christian home. They found that these Christians wanted a God and thought of God as a God who would give us some rules to live by, who would, who would, but not really expect us to keep those rules, who would kind of look away when we broke those rules. We wanted a God who would right all the wrongs in other people, but who will vindicate us when people treat us badly and who will reward us for our good deeds. We want a a moral God who makes us as moral people feel good about our morality. They also found that we want a God who understands us and who listens to our concerns, who will fix our problems, someone who knows how hard it is for us, who will agree with our self-justification, who will prescribe the rest that we assign ourselves, for the hard work that we do. We want a God who will function as our personal therapist, if you like. And we want a God who is all-powerful, who is able to give us good things, but like a cosmic Santa Claus. Someone who will help us to explain how we got here, who provides us with purpose and meaning because we're made in his image but who doesn't intervene forcefully in our lives because he respects our independence. We want a a God who is, if you like, deistic and transcendent and who is far away from us, but not intimately involved. So they called this, uh, I mean, this is not obviously what we would call Christianity. This is is the idea, though, of a, a Christianity where God takes us as we are, and then gives stuff to us, adds to us, if you like. This is called, they called this moralistic therapeutic deism. And we want to acknowledge that God does indeed give us gifts. There's no question about that. But the point here is that this God that we seem to want is a God who is sort of separate to us and is out there. But again, this is not what the Bible speaks us. The Bible uses phrases such as in him and in Christ and with him, with Christ. Being in union with Christ and the concept of union with Christ is a little bit more like uh, an old widow, if you like. There was a time in England where Queen Victoria, you probably heard of her, she was the queen in the late second half of the uh, 1800s. She used to go around to the people just the average person who was in her kingdom and just visit them. And one day she came to the home of this little old widow 
And she went in, and they had a brief period of Christian fellowship because Queen Victoria uh, was, a, as far as people can tell, I guess, was a Christian. And some of you will probably know better than I will. But anyway, but later on, the, this lady's neighbors, this old, elderly lady, her neighbors taunted her, as they often did about her faith in Christ. And they said to her, Granny, who is the most important or honored guest you've ever entertained in your home? And they expected her, of course, to say it was Jesus, because even though they hassled her and taunted her about her faith in Christ, they recognized that she had a deep spirituality and love of Christ. To their surprise, she answered, why, the, my most honored guest is, of course, Her Majesty the Queen. And they said to her, did you say the Queen? Aha, we've got you this time. What about this Jesus you keep talking about? Isn't he your most honored guest? And her answer was clear and simple. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. He's not a guest. He lives here. And you can see she had a different idea of Christ and the relationship with her than these other group of people found that the average Christian does. See, Christ is not out there. He's in here. We are bound together with him, inseparably. And in our passage today, Paul is going to provide us with two practical directives of our union with Christ, two practical consequences of our union with Christ. Before I explain these two consequences, though, I just want to give you a brief overview of what the Bible, and particularly Colossians, teaches us about union with Christ, because it's an important theological, um, it's important theology, I guess is a good way of putting it, but it's one that we don't talk about very much. It's not particularly well understood. John Murray, who was a a well-known theologian in the 20th century, he said that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application but also in its once-for-all accomplishment of the finished work of Christ. You see, union with Christ is the hub, if you like, from which all the spokes of salvation come from. So So justification and sanctification and even our eschatology is all rooted in our union with Christ. The New Testament talks about our union with Christ using a number of different illustrations. In Ephesians chapter 2, union with Christ is likened to a building with its cornerstone. So you put the cornerstone down first, and then the rest of the building is built around that cornerstone. No cornerstone, and the building falls apart. Cornerstone and no building if you don't have a building. You need both together. In John chapter 15, union with Christ is likened to the vine and the branches. The branches can't bear fruit without the life coming from the vine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, union with Christ is likened to a human body where the eye can't say to the foot, because you're not an eye, I don't need you. So we all work together and we need one another and it all flows from the head who is Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, union with Christ is likened to the relationship or the union between a husband and wife, which is to say it's an intensely intimate relationship. It has a consummation and it is very de- and it's deeply relational. 
when we look at the book of Colossians, in chapter 2 particularly, there are several key elements there that we, we find. First of all, we find that our union with Christ, first of all, is rooted in God's union with man in the incarnation. So it says there in chapter 2, verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. So those two things, the incarnation and our union with Christ, go together. Uh, In verse 10 there, you've been filled in him. Another thing we find there is in verse 12, we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It says there in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, so we're joined with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Because he conquered death, because he died, we died with him. Because he rose and we're joined with him, we rose with him. Because he now has new life, we also have new life. So when we're joined with Christ, all that belongs to him now belongs to us. And all that we, ha- all that we have becomes his. And this has rich implications. We often talk about the doctrine of justification as an example. And we think of my sins were put on him and his righteousness was put on me as if it was some kind of exchange. But nowhere in the scripture is it referred to as an exchange. We're united with Christ. So our sin became his. His righteousness became ours. And so when we died with him in the cross, the punishment that is ours was laid on him because of that Union with him. It's a little bit like getting a married, getting married. When you get married, you know, you may be in a, it depends, you know, some of you will be in this position where, you know, the person you married was wealthy, you know, and so all their wealth becomes yours. And some of you are in the opposite position where you married a poor person, perhaps, and all their debt became yours, right? It's a little bit like that with union with Christ, except we are the debtors. And he is the wealthy one. And so when we're joined, all of our debt became his and all of his wealth became ours. This also flows into the relationship we have in sanctification. In sanctification, you know, prior to the time we were, um, prior to our salvation, we were dead in sin and unable to do anything except sin. But because we're now joined with Christ, we're able to walk in holiness. And it's this idea of walking in holiness that as we turn to our text here in Colossians, Paul has in mind. So Paul here is teaching us that because of our union with Christ, we can now live differently to the time before we were saved, the time before we were united with Christ. So Paul is turning his attention here for us to live as those who have been raised with Christ. And like I said before, he gives us two practical directives that flow out of our participation or our union with Christ, particularly as it comes from his resurrection here. The first one we see there in verses 1 and 2, he gives us two commands. And in these two commands, he tells us, first of all, to focus on what is important, not on what is urgent. So we're to focus on what is important, not on what is urgent. He says there, if you were raised with Christ. Let me ask the question, first of all, what does it mean 
How should we understand this idea of being raised with Christ? And I mentioned this in passing just before. Prior to being in union with Christ, we were in bondage to sin. Sin, that means rules over us. Romans chapter 3 says that we did not seek God. No one seeks God. We are unable to seek God prior to being in Christ. Martin Luther called this the bondage of the will. And what he meant by that is you can do whatever you want but it will always be sin because you are not focused on the purposes and plans of Christ because you're outside of Christ. Being raised with Christ, on the other hand, renews us, gives us this new life that we're now able to walk in the spirit or in the flesh, whereas before we could only walk in the flesh, now we can choose the flesh or the spirit, and Galatians chapter 5 explains that. So where once our choice was only sin, now we can choose to obey from the heart what Christ taught us to do. And that comes out of our being raised with Christ. So Paul starts there, if therefore you have been raised with Christ, then he gives the command, seek the things that are above. Since you have this new orientation Your life, your mind, your thoughts, your focus should all have that new orientation with it. If you've been raised with Christ, you should have a new focus. And here the focus is to be on the things that are above. And so we need to ask the question, what are the things that are above? And he gives us an explanation there. He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you've read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the New Testament, you would have come across Psalm 110 verse 1, where it says there, My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You remember that verse? So that verse is mentioned in the New Testament over 30 times, and it's always in reference to Christ. And so what we have here is this verse that's saying, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this is going back to Psalm 110 verse 1. So Christ is seated at the right hand of God, which is a position of power. It is a position of prominence. It is a position of strength. It is a position of privilege. And it is a position of honor and a position of favor. That's where Christ is right now. And that's what our focus needs to be. Having accomplished all that the Father sent him to do, Christ is now in this position of honor. But you know what's really amazing? Is that the Bible also tells us that we are seated together with him in the heavenly places. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our transgressions. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So now because we're united with Christ, where he is, we spiritually have that union with him, and we join him there as well. So in the sense that Christ is in this position of honor and privilege, we share in that honor and privilege. Now, Obviously, neither you nor I are physically sitting there right now. However, 
the union between us and Christ is not a physical union. It's a spiritual union. And so there's a sense in which we, while we're down here and while Christ is up there, so to speak, we're still joined to him. There's still this union between us. Not only are we at the right hand of the Father with him, but he too is here with us. He joins himself to us. So the depth of this union is the reason why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul condemns sexual immorality amongst believers. Because if you're a believer and you're joined with Christ, and you have, if you're sexually immoral, you join Christ in that immorality. But because of this union, and because we're united with him and he is in heaven, we are to seek the things that are above Notice in verse 2, he says there, he gives us this contrast, not the things that are on the earth. The point here is, there's the things in heaven, or there's the things here on earth. We get to focus our attention on one or the other of those two things. There's a contrast. Because we've been raised to this new life, we're supposed to have a new focus. The things of this earth are not the main thing for us. Our focus is no longer about us here, but on Christ there. Our interests are not to be found in this world, but in the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, and the hope that will be revealed for us in Christ. Our our being united with Christ, it's not merely, and our being here now is not merely what we see on earth, but our lives are bound up with the God-man who is in heaven. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about how that our citizenship is in heaven. Let's say, for instance, you leave Texas and you go on a holiday to some exotic location such as, I don't know, New Zealand. And while you're there in New Zealand, a disaster strikes. There's a flood or a sinkhole opens up and... A lot of people die. Maybe a flood. That's more destructive. And you're in New Zealand on this holiday. Are you, when you're in New Zealand on holiday and you hear about this great disaster in your hometown, are you going to be carrying on in New Zealand as if nothing happened? Of course not. Because your home is here, your heart is here. Because your loved ones are here, your interests will be here. Because your family is in the disaster zone, that's going to be where your concern will be. As nice as New Zealand may be, and you've seen the movies, I'm sure, you're just passing through. Your real concern is home, and so it should be for us. See, our home is in heaven. Our Lord is in heaven. Our life is in heaven. Our destiny is in heaven is in heaven because we are joined with Christ above. Our focus, our will is not directed to the matters here on earth. Our will is directed to the matters that Christ himself is concerned with. Now, let me just make a quick note here. That doesn't mean that we turn our gaze entirely from earth because Christ is concerned about what's going on here as well. 
But you see, the key thing is that when we're focused on what he's focused on, when we think about the things that are here, we're thinking the way he's thinking about them. How's your focus? Is your, is your focus on his will or have you narrowed it down to your will? Is, it, is your focus the things of your home in heaven and your focus on the Lord or is your focus the things here? Do you concern yourself with what the head of the body is concerned with? Is his will your focus or are you self-governed? Because those are really the two choices. Secondly, Paul notes here that the, the direction of the will to follow is going to follow the direction of your mind. Therefore, in verse 2 there, he says to us, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. You see, the focus of our lives will be determined by the focus of our mind. What you think about will determine what you do. And so Paul focuses us here and tells us to set our mind on things above. Henry Skugel, who uh, you might not have heard of this man, he's a Puritan, uh, interesting guy, died at the age of 28 of tuberculosis, but wrote this wonderful little book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And in that book, he wrote this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loves mean and sordid things does thereby become base, base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection does advise, advance and improve the spirit unto conformity with the perfections which it loves. Let me paraphrase all of that into modern language. What he's saying is that where you put your mind and what you love are going to be the same thing. What you love and what you think about are going to then determine and make you into the object of your love. If you love Christ, that love and that direction of the mind will focus you on Christ and make you like him. But if you love base and vile things, as Google says, then you will be molded and your character will be shaped by those things which you love. So Paul says here, that we are to set our minds on things above. There is this huge focus in the New Testament, particularly, but the Old Testament as well. In the New Testament, we'll read a few, about what we are to do with our mind. The New Testament, over and over, tells us to think about what we're doing with our mind. In Romans 8 verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What's the focus of your mind? Do you set your mind on the things of the Spirit? See, God gives the unsaved over to a depraved mind, and so the mindset on the flesh is death, according to Romans 8.6. Those who are enemies of God set their minds on earthly things, according to Philippians 3. In Romans 12.2, we are transformed by the renewing of our, what? Minds. See, there's a purpose. We're renewed by our mind, so there is a purpose. And so when we are renewed by our mind, it's only then that we can prove the will of God. So be renewed by the, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may 
prove what is the will of God. So the purpose of the renewing of the mind is to see, test, and approve of what God's will is. See, it's only as our mind is transformed can we live out God's will. It's only as our minds are transformed can we approve God's will. In fact, we can only, as our minds are transformed, agree. We need that transformation to be able to even agree with God's way of doing things. If you want to grow in confidence that God has everything under control and is trustworthy, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, 6, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise, what? Think, dwell on these things. Do you see why having the mind of Christ is so important? Because what we think on what we meditate on, what we dwell on, will determine the focus of our lives. And this is the connection between verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, set your mind on things above, and verse 1 is really the consequence, to focus on the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. If you're going to seek the things that are above, you need to be thinking the things that are above. Another illustration of this, we've many of us have got children and You'll remember, of course, when they're young, children come up with some interesting ideas at times. And as parents, part of our job is to cultivate these ideas. The reason we do that is that we know that if you start to get funny ideas when you're little and you don't get them corrected, you end up holding on to them and keeping them. And we want to set our children on the right path. And so it is here. Paul is telling us to think and focus on the things that are above. However, we're all human. We all know that this is very hard. Why is it that it's so hard to set our mind on things above? Someone once said that if you're a thinker, you're unique among your fellow men. For it's estimated that 5% think they think, and 85% would rather die than think. You see, we stop thinking when we leave school a lot of the time. So we leave school, we stop reading and writing. We, we swap Bible reading for videos or movies or TV preachers. We swap hearing the word for listening to music. We focus on the easy things to do to fill our minds and we sacrifice the things that take more time and discipline. We focus on our feelings and not on God's principles and we follow our feelings. But Paul says that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And then here in Colossians, he says, set your mind on things above. So on the one hand, we know this is difficult but on the other hand, we know we are to discipline ourselves for godliness. Another reason that this is very hard is that the world presses upon us. And here we face, on this world, we face the visible and the urgent and the, the things that impress upon us. And so here I've sort of labeled these things urgent things. The, the world presses upon us urgent, urgently. Urgent things require immediate attention. The phone rings. 
and we have to answer it. We can't just let it ring. In fact, we can't let it ring. So even if we can't answer it, we, we get a, a, a uh, answer service to answer the phone for us. Urgent matters are the things that are visible. They're often very popular with other people. Urgent things are usually right there in our face in front of us, confronting us. Other Urgent things are usually, well, not usually, but often a lot of fun. They're often easy or pleasant. But these urgent things are seldom as important as they make themselves out to be. And so here we are focused on the things that are urgent rather than things that are important. And so Paul here is telling us to focus on the things that are important. Here's a piece of encouragement for you in terms of setting our mind on things above. If you are a believer, you can change your thought patterns. The reason is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16, we find there that he says to us, Paul says, that we have the mind of Christ. Again, because of our union with Christ, we have something of his ability and his power and his person in us that allows us to do this. Does having the mind of Christ make it easier for us to focus on him? You betcha. Do you think the mind of Christ is focused on this world or the world above? See, we're to be transformed as we allow our mind to be renewed, as we allow the thoughts of Christ to dwell in us richly. God has equipped you and I with all that we need to set our mind on things above. The task for us is to discipline ourselves and do it. The challenge for us is that we have all this urgent stuff going on around us. And the immediacy and the consuming presence of this world causes us not to focus on what's important, but to focus on what is urgent. And yet Paul tells us that in light of our union with Christ, we are to focus on what is important, not what is urgent. See, God is concerned about our focus on earth and this earthly tent. We must prioritize what he prioritized. We must have, you know, just as we think about personal integrity and business integrity, you know, being right with one another, you know, we, when we become Christians, we devote ourselves to him, right? It's a, it's a, there's a, there's a giving over of ourselves that happens and part of our agreement in baptism to die that we that we die with, died with Christ is a volitional command or a volitional element that we will do that. I mean, when we, you know, part of the idea of dying with Christ, part of the idea of baptism is that we agree that that's what's happened and we're going to live accordingly. And so there's a, an integrity we have to have before God as well as this personal integrity we need with one another. See, our mind cannot be on the urgent things on this world They need to be on our stand before God. We have responsibilities before the Lord, which are way more important than gaining material wealth or physical well-being. In other words, what Paul is saying here is focus on what's important, not on what is urgent. What's important is, first of all, the direction of the will, and secondly, the direction of the mind. The second major thing here in verses 3 and 4 Not only are we to focus on what is important, not on what is urgent, but we're also to focus on what is coming, not on what is now. 
He's just finished telling us that the, the finished telling us, sorry, to focus on the important, not the urgent, but we're also to focus on what is coming, not what is now. However, he doesn't give this to us as a command like he did previously. Here it's more of an explanation. And this is a consequence of our union with Christ that really, and I put it in, into uh, the idea of our focus because as we think about who we are in Christ, part of our focus is not the now but the future. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 3 and 4. And he says there in verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, we're not going to go over Colossians 2, but in Colossians chapter 2, we find there four different consequences of, uh, uh, of having died with Christ. First one is that the power of sin is broken. The second one is that we've walked away from the old life. The third one is that we've been forgiven. And the fourth one is that the law was fulfilled for us in Christ. And so we have died, he says to us here, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And remember I mentioned before that everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. His death is our death, not our physical death, but certainly the death he died to sin. So we share a a spiritual union with him. It's a real union, but it's a spiritual one where his spirit and our spirit are inseparably joined. This this spiritual union means that he died our death and that we agreed to join him in that death. So salvation, therefore, is is a work of God, but it's also a work that we participate in once we're saved. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And so Paul points out here, you died, and because you died, you need a new life. And he says there, what does he say about a new life? You died and your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. So when we died, we were also made alive together, verse 1. But that life is not merely the here and now, but it's in heaven. There's, there's, this, there's this piece of us, there's this reality of who we are in Christ now that is hidden and unable to be seen. The world looks at us and we look like just average Michaels and Joes and Daryls. And, well, there's more than one Daryl here. That's great. And, and so on. So we're, we're, we're just average people from the world's view of us. But the Bible tells us here, that there's something hidden about our life. Our life is not merely what we see here, but it is hidden with Christ in God. You see, we leave behind the concerns of this world for the concerns of God. We leave behind the poverty of earth for the riches of heaven. We leave behind this world's pleasures for better pleasures. We abandon the best of the fallen, cursed world for the best of God's thinking and planning. We abandon the glory of man to be partakers of the glory of Christ. Isn't that a lofty thought? We forget the best man may ever obtain to in order to inherit the best that God has prepared. 
Though our life is hidden and Christ is hidden in God, it will be revealed. And Paul's, Paul's ministry, if you remember from Ephesians 3, he says that his ministry was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So Paul's ministry was to bring out and explain to us what is hidden. And so God is making known to us this morning through this passage part of what is hidden, what our life is hidden in Christ. So he gives us this idea in verse 4 of what this looks like. So when he says the life is hidden with Christ in God, what exactly is he getting at? Well, verse 4 gives us an explanation. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Again, in Colossians, there's consequences of being raised with Christ, new life, new direction, uh, and a renewal we participate in. But here Paul's also reviewing, uh, re- revealing rather a fourth element of our being raised with Christ, and that is that there is a future to our being raised with Christ, the future to our union with Christ. Remember I mentioned before, right at the beginning, I talked about the different ways the New Testament talks about union with Christ. One of those ways was marriage. One of the things I mentioned there about uh, our union with Christ in terms of marriage is that there's a consummation. Just like the husband and wife, there's a consummation part of marriage. Here also with our union with Christ, there is a consummation. It's not here yet. It's hidden. It's yet to come. And this is what he's explaining here. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. While you're turning there, um, I just want to bring out one more thing, I guess, with regards to marriage. Uh, In terms of, there's a couple of passages in the New Testament that talks about union with Christ and marriage. Romans 7 talks about it. But Ephesians chapter 5 talks about marriage and explains the relationship between the husband and the wife and the responsibilities and roles that are there. And then in verse 32, he says there that the entire marriage relationship is an ultimate illustration of Christ and the church. Marriage illustrates the union between Christ and the church. And like I said, this has not been consummated. All we have right now is, if you like, the down payment, the pledge. And you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, what's the down payment? What's the pledge? The Holy Spirit, who is given to us as the, in the Greek word is arabon, the down payment, the pledge. It's like a wedding ring that he gives us with a view to a future consummation. And we find that future consummation in Revelation chapter 19. So in Revelation chapter 19, let's read verses 6 through 8. It says there, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you've probably read this passage before. You know about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice a couple of things here. First of all, verse 8, the bride clothes herself. She clothes herself with fine linen, bright 
and pure. And it describes those, the clothing is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice though, in Ephesians, the, it is Christ who prepares the church to present it to himself in Ephesians 5, right? So there's a union even in our work. He works in us and we work together with him, which is why Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is who? God who works in you. So you work it out, but it's God who works in you. So there's a union even in our work together. But here's the question. Who would wear the righteous deeds of the saints and be married to Christ? It's the church. So here is the church in Revelation clothed with fine, with fine linen, bright and clean. Now, skip down a few verses to verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of, di- of, of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is the appearing of Christ referred to in Colossians 3 verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Well, this is the appearing of Christ. Here he comes in glory with a special name, with a special clothing. And it says in verse 14, with the armies, the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who did we just come across a moment ago, clothed in fine linen, white and clean? It was the church. Here you have Christ coming and the church is following with him. This is what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Christ comes from heaven at his second coming, the armies of heaven, the church, follow him. Notice there in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, interesting thing, that idea of the rod of iron to rule, that also goes back to Old Testament, but also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, to one of the seven churches, Jesus says, to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The rule of Christ, we will join him. We will be united, not only with his coming, but even in that reign with him. You see, when we are joined with Christ finally at that marriage supper of the Lamb, where he goes, we go. Where he is, there we are. What he's doing, that's what we're doing. Because that's the nature of our union. That's what God has designed and destined for each one of us. You see, our life is currently hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ is revealed, when he is no longer hidden, when the fullness of time comes to unite all things in him, where will we be? We will be united with him still. 
we will still be joined to him. We will still be participating in his life. We will still be dependent on him, but we will be with him in glory. We will be reigning with him. We will no longer be just this earthen vessel. But the fullness of what God has revealed for us in his word will finally be ours. And we will be revealed with him in glory. What a hope we have through our union with Christ. What expectation, what privilege, what joy. As you think about this, does it put the trials and sufferings of this life into perspective? Does it help you to see the significance of those? See, the mind of hope is not focused on the struggles of the here and now, the pain and the difficulty of this life. Though they are great at times, Romans says that they are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whether you live or die, you will appear with him in glory. Everyone in season 1 John who has this hope purifies himself. But this hope isn't for everyone. It is for those who have died with Christ, those who have been buried with him, those who are raised with him to new life. But this hope is available to everyone today. So if you've never joined yourself to Christ, not merely in terms of saying a prayer or anything like that, but with all your volition, with all of your mind, with all of your heart, if you are willing to abandon all your ways, to die to yourself, to turn from your sinful deeds, and to live for and with Christ, then seek forgiveness from Him. Ask Him. He is gracious, and He will forgive you and join you to Himself forevermore. And all of this hope will be yours. See, our union with Christ is what gives all this to us. Our union with Christ provides us with these two practical directives. And if you're united with Christ now, he's calling us to focus on what is important, not on what is urgent, because our goals are no longer earthly. Our life is not here. Our concerns are not worldly. Our orientation is to be focused around Christ. We're to do this through the setting our mind on things above. And we're to focus not only on the things, the, the, the important, not the urgent, but to focus on what is coming, not on what is now. The glory to be revealed to us, in which we will appear with Christ, is so far beyond comparison of the worst corruption and pain this world can offer. This is the reason people die for Christ. Because union with Christ and being with him forever is so much greater. As we close, I'm going to just ask you to imagine with me, just in terms of how we apply this, I'm going to ask you men to do something weird. Okay? Bear with me. Think of for a moment that you're a wife. See how it's weird? Think for a moment that you're a wife, and you're married to a man who, let's say, works on an oil rig. He's away for months at a time. How do you live while he's away? You're going to be without him, but you still have to live. You're still married to him. You're still united together. You're still one. But 
Because you're married, it should determine how you live. You will live as a chaste wife. You will focus your attention on his return. You will busy yourself with the responsibilities he's given you. Your focus will be on your family, on those who share that union. You will have a desire to please him. And you will want him to rejoice in you when he returns. And it seems weird for us as a man to think as a woman. I get that. But we are the church. We all are the bride of Christ. Are you living now as one joined to Christ? Is your focus bound up with this union? Are you focused on your service to your eternal husband? Do you concern yourself with what he has given you to do? Or are you living an individualistic life, focused on yourself? Do you set your mind on him? Do you consider his values, his commandments, his desires, his interests? Are you living now as if he will return? Do you live like you've been freed from this world? Do you live like this world is not your life? Or is it your life? Do you consider Christ to be your life? Do you look forward to that day when you will be revealed with him in glory? Do you ponder the wonder of this union? Do you focus on what is coming or on what is now? Because we're raised with Christ, because we're eternally united with him, we are to focus on what is important, not on what is urgent, and we are to focus on what is coming not on what is now. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what an amazing thing union with Christ is that we could be joined with you, not only in our justification that all our sins are covered and dealt with because we're joined with Christ and the satisfaction of our sins was fully met in him, not just in our sanctification in that we have the mind of Christ and we have the flesh accompanied now by the Spirit of Christ so that we can choose to do what is right, but also, Lord, the hope that is ahead for us. What an amazing thing to think that when Christ appears in glory, we will be with him. Father, we pray that you would help us to set our minds on these things Help our focus to be changed by these things. Help our hope to be fixed in our mind on the future so that all that is present may fade into insignificance and we might use it to bring glory and honor to you because this is our greatest desire and this is what you're worthy of. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.